0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: If I were the AG, I would expect at some point um, a prosecution memo that would probably lay out um, all the reasons why charges should be brought against, you know, the former president, other people in the White House, people at the Justice Department, and then
0: people outside of government. That's Eric Holder. He served as the United States Attorney General in the Obama administration from 2009 to 2015. Since leaving office, Holder, who was the first African-American to lead the Justice Department, has focused on voting rights. He has written a new book on the subject called Our Unfinished March, The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote. The former Attorney General joins me as the House January 6th Committee holds its first public hearings and as the Department of Justice faces increasing pressure to hold former President Trump and those around him accountable for inciting the insurrection. Holder and I discuss whether DOJ will indict Trump, but we also have a wide-ranging conversation about justice and the rule of law, including Holder's fight against partisan gerrymandering and what he makes of the so-called progressive prosecutor movement. That's coming up, stay tuned.
3: Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Do you want a career that meets you where you are and takes you where you wanna go? Whatever your individual ambitions, motivations, and skills may be, discover your potential at Deloitte, right along with purpose-driven teams and a difference-making culture. Be seen for who you are and celebrated for what you bring. Discover your impact at Deloitte. Learn more at deloitte.com us slash discovercareers.
0: Now, let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Caitlin, who asks, what is the significance of Republican lawmakers asking former President Trump for pardons as it relates to the January 6th hearings? Caitlin, you're obviously referring to a little bit of a bombshell that was dropped by Liz Cheney, the vice chair of the committee, at the first hearing on June 9th. And what's interesting about it is, I guess, you know, several things. One, unlike some other things that she talked about and that Benny Thompson talked about, It was a mere preview of what the evidence will in the future show. They didn't provide any evidence or corroboration or anything, for that matter, other than a blanket statement that members of Congress, Republican members, including one that they named specifically, Representative Scott Perry, had sought pardons from Donald Trump in between, I guess sometime in between, January 6th and the end of his term, noon on January 20th. Now, that's significant, as even a layperson can understand, Why would you seek a pardon unless you thought that you were guilty of something, guilty of something of a criminal nature, or at the very least, you had some reason to expect or worry that charges could be filed against you? Why else would you seek a preemptive pardon? In the context of a hearing like this, when the committee writes its report, if it has real evidence of the seeking of pardons by Perry and others, that gives an impression of consciousness of guilt, something the prosecutors call it when people exhibit some behavior or some conduct that shows they have some awareness that they might be guilty of something. In a way, it's a version of a kind of confession. It says something very real about the state of mind of the people who are seeking a pardon, which is, by the way, itself, an extraordinary form of relief and particularly extraordinary when it's sought preemptively without there having been a charge or even an investigation at that point. What I think is also interesting is that the named member of Congress, the Republican representative, Scott Perry, very stridently denied that he had sought a pardon. So you have a strident statement by Liz Cheney that pardons were sought. One of the people who sought a pardon was Scott Perry. Scott Perry denies it. We'll see how the hearings unfold. But one of the things I'm looking forward to is seeing what the evidence is, seeing what the corroboration is, seeing how strong it is and whether or not Scott Perry is gonna have to eat his words or he's just gonna call people who testify to that liars, which I suppose is possible as well. Either way, at some point soon in these hearings, either Liz Cheney or Scott Perry will have egg on their face. And so far, on matters relating to January 6th, Liz Cheney has the credibility here. This question comes in an email from Todd, who says, what is important about the testimony we'll hear on Thursday from former White House lawyer Eric Hirschman recalling the conversation he had with John Eastman? Well, this is very important. I'm recording this on Wednesday morning. On Tuesday during the day, Liz Cheney released on social media and elsewhere... A preview of some of the testimony we're going to hear at the Thursday afternoon hearing. And it's a bit of a clever preview and eyebrow raising. Liz Cheney specifically decided to let people have a glimpse about what was to come. She said on Tuesday, in our next hearing on Thursday, the Select Committee will examine President Trump's relentless effort on January 6th and in the days beforehand to pressure Vice President Pence to refuse to count lawful electoral votes. And she says also, President Trump plotted with a lawyer named John Eastman and others to overturn the outcome of the election on January 6th. And then she plays a clip of Eric Hirschman testifying behind closed doors with staff to the committee. You'll recall that John Eastman was a campaign lawyer for Donald Trump and wrote that memo, the Eastman memo, that outlined a bogus way that Trump could sway the election back to him after he had lost it in a free and fair election. And what we will see is a description of an extraordinary conflict between two lawyers, both nominally In the service of Donald Trump, except one was a lawyer for the White House and represented the institution of the presidency. And the other, a personal campaign lawyer who represented Donald Trump's personal interests. John Eastman is the campaign lawyer and Eric Hirschman was a member of the White House counsel's office. And he tells the following story. He says it was the day after, meaning the day after January 6th. And he's talking about a conversation he had on the telephone with John Eastman. Hirschman doesn't remember the exact nature of the call, but understands that it's about Georgia and preserving something potentially for appeal. So it's an example of John Eastman. After the violent insurrection of January 6th, when the country is reeling from the scenes that they had seen of people overrunning the Congress, chanting hang Mike Pence, looking for Nancy Pelosi, this man, John Eastman, is persisting in efforts to change the results of the election. And Hirschman, who's a lawyer in the White House Counsel's Office for Donald Trump, says... I said to him, are you out of your effing mind? Right? I, said, I, I said, I only want to hear two words coming out of your mouth for now on. Orderly transition. And then he screamed and said, I don't want to hear any other effing words coming out of your mouth no matter what, other than orderly transition. Repeat those words to me. And Hershman goes on to say that eventually... Eastman obliged and said, orderly transition. And this is my favorite, and I think the most interesting part of the Hirschman statement. I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great F in criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. And then I hung up on him. Now, obviously, on the ultimate question of whether or not John Eastman broke the law, the view of another lawyer in telling him in so many words that he needed a criminal defense lawyer and he maybe had criminal exposure, is not dispositive of what was in the mind of John Eastman. But boy, just like the seeking of pardons in the question I answered previously, in this context, the fact that you have a Trump White House lawyer who is adamant that Eastman should not persist in this kind of talk and probably needs to get a criminal defense lawyer, it sure paints a bad picture of the people around Donald Trump. And guess what? John Eastman ended up getting a criminal defense lawyer, Charles Burnham, Don't know if he's a great effing criminal defense lawyer, but he is one. I think one thing to watch for in the hearing is what other testimony Eric Hirschman and others give about the persistence of John Eastman and Donald Trump and the other people around him, even after the insurrection of January 6th, to continue to try to overturn the election. That bears on Donald Trump's state of mind as well. We'll be right back with my conversation with Attorney General Eric Holder.
2: Discover the power of NetSuite, a leading cloud financial system serving more than 37,000 businesses. Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com/preet. That's netsuite.com/preet to get your own KPI checklist. Support for this show comes from DraftKings Sportsbook. The big game is almost here and DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with a brand new offer. New customers can bet on the big game and turn 5 bucks into 200 instantly in bonus bets. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code PREET. New customers can bet $5 to get $200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook. An official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 58 with code PREET. The crown is yours. In
0: 2012, Democrats running for Congress collectively received 1.4 million more votes than Republicans. Despite that, the GOP won 33 more House seats. That's because Republicans had aggressively gerrymandered the congressional map following the 2010 midterms. As the chair of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee... Eric Holder has spent the last few years working to make sure that doesn't happen again. All right, this is going to be fun. Former Attorney General Eric Holder, welcome to the show. Preet, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. So congratulations on the new book, a very important book, Our Unfinished March, The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote. We'll talk about voting issues, which I know is is the, the issue that drives you since you left public office. And as you say, the right to vote is the right that ensures all our other rights. But before we get to that, just because it's on everyone's mind. Sure. And it's newsworthy, and you used to be the Attorney General, and I'm wondering what you think about how the current Justice Department is handling the insurrection of January 6th. Uh, There have been two hearings so far. I I should note for the audience that we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, June 14th. So there have been two hearings. By the time this airs, there will have been another here. Have you been watching? And if so, what's your impression?
1: Yeah, I have been watching. And, you know, I think what I find unbelievably amazing is that as bad as I thought the Trump administration was, there is even more, there's even more dysfunction there than I thought. Uh, To hear, you know, team normal, as opposed to, uh, you know, whoever the other people were, um, the descriptions of former President Trump and his inability to deal with uh, reality, it was uh, it, it's been a pretty amazing look at what I th- what I think is probably one of the worst administrations we've ever had. And with that low bar that
0: I had, we've gone even below that. How do you think the committee is handling itself both in the investigation and in the referrals made to the Justice Department and in the public hearings themselves?
1: Yeah, I think in in the conduct of the hearings, I think they've done a good job. I think they've um, paid attention to the notion that this has to be compelling television. It has to be a compelling presentation that they're doing. And so I think the use of video clips uh, and the way they have used them makes a great deal of sense. Um, the, the live witnesses who were on, um, you know, yesterday, I thought were the way in which they were examined, I, I thought was done well. Um, also, you know, w- with regard to um, the referrals for contempt, uh, I think that was appropriate. And, you know, the Justice Department has made determinations, I guess, uh, with regard to two of the four to, you know, to proceed. So I, I think the committee's actually done, um, done quite well. Um, I, I think that, the, uh, the presence of uh, Representative Cheney has had uh, a real impact. Um, I think that, you know, the, the Democrats are, are quite capable, um, but I think she brings a, a certain dimension to the, uh, to the committee that is, is going to help them, uh, I, I think, get to uh, a good place.
0: Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible— There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. Do you think there's an, and I totally agree with you, particularly about Representative Cheney. Do you think there's an argument that has some merit about the illegitimacy of the committee because there's no one on there who is sort of a pro-Trump figure?
1: No, not really. I mean, I think, you know, facts are facts. Um, And clearly there was a desire to create a truly, you know, bipartisan commission, uh, well, yeah, commission to start, and then a committee, I guess, as a fallback where you'd have maybe an equal number of people. But I think at the end of the day, instead of hearing the, the, this kind of stupid and, and silly partisan wrangling that we would have been subjected to, we're just getting. Um, a group of people determined to find out what the facts were and then share those facts with the American people. So I don't think that, uh, you know, I, I think seriousness is more important than, um, you know, partisan representation. And the fact is, I think that both um, Cheney and, and Kissinger, are, are, I think, are, you know, very serious people and taking the job um, seriously, you know, as well as, as the Democrats. So uh, there, there is you do have the capacity to say that. You know, it's bipartisan in the sense that you have very conservative. I mean, you got to understand this. You know, they are very, very yeah. conservative Republicans here who have, um, as, you know, we, we say all the time, but I, it's, I
0: think it's worth it's worth saying here, they've put, um, you know, country before party. Is You know, as not just the former attorney general, but the former deputy attorney general, former U.S. attorney, you have had a lot of intimate experience with the Department of Justice and understand the values that it's supposed to stand for and have tried to guard those both in and out of office is there some aspect of the shenanigans going on at DOJ towards the end of the Trump term that disturbs you the most and i can give you i'll give you one option and that is the collusion of a hitherto unknown and unfamous official named jeffrey clark with the president to try to do something to overturn the election in georgia is there some is, is it that or is there something else that disturbs you the most as a veteran of the DOJ. All
1: right, well, we don't have enough time (laughs) to go through all the things that disturbed me about the Trump Justice Department. But looking at the end, I mean, yeah, the the role that Jeffrey Clark appears to have played um, in colluding to, in essence, uh, foment a coup, um, you know, here in the United States to stop the transfer of power uh, is extremely disturbing to me. And it is something that I hope will be looked at by the existing Justice Department. Uh, I hope that it will be explored by the committee. I understand that there was supposed to be a segment that they're going to be looking at um, at the Justice Department itself. But I also hope that people um, don't fall for, um, you know, the Bill Barr uh, presentation of himself in the sense that he's trying to make himself out to be a hero. He says, you know, stuff was was, was bullshit. Um, and the reality was, you know, that immediately after the election, he reversed a longstanding Justice Department norm that says you don't really launch investigations until the, the votes are certified um, before the election. And this is while Trump was in the process of making those outlandish, um, unsupported claims. And earlier in, in the year, he was, you know, trying to push his U.S. attorneys. To do a great deal with regard to finding of, of voter fraud, so you know, and there's a lot of information that Barr could have shared um, in a more timely way, such that uh, it might have affected his book sales, but also might have had a positive <laughs> yeah. Im- might have had a positive impact on the on the nation.
0: Did you did you know Bill Barr from before? And if so, I, I imagine you did. Do you think he changed, or there were aspects of him that you just didn't appreciate?
1: Yeah, I didn't know him well. I think we only met a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was when he was, um, I guess, the GC at uh, Verizon, at, at Verizon, yeah, when Verizon merged uh, with, with a company that I was on the board of directors of. And I, I think we just met briefly then. And I actually thought that his appointment after uh, Jeff Sessions left was going to be a good thing. For the Justice Department. You and my,
0: I both, and we were both incorrect. Totally. We were totally
1: incorrect. I mean, my perception of him was formulated on the basis of what I thought he was during his prior time as, uh, as Attorney General. Upon closer examination of that, and I didn't do that. Um, I should have been a, a lot more worried um, than I was. I should not have been as optimistic about his appointment um, as, as I was. Um, he was an utter disaster um, for the Justice Department. Um, he compromised the independence of the department. He trashed norms for partisan and ideological reasons. Uh, he was an extremely divisive force in the nation and a poor leader for an institution that you and I both revere.
0: What do you think happened at the end? You know, this was a guy, as you mentioned, who was pushing the department, who was interfering in cases of cronies of Donald Trump, including Michael Flynn and and Roger Stone, and then was also pushing conspiracy theories about what would happen with the vote and how there would likely be fraud and ballots would be coming in from foreign countries. But then at the end, middle or late December, he bailed. Do you have a theory as to why he did that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think... Bar, unlike a lot of the other people in the, the Trump orbit, is actually pretty smart, and um, he saw where this was going. And he, you know, there was cray cray, but there was a limit <laughs> for how that's far— that's a legal
0: term. I, what statute is cray cray in?
1: That's uh, 18 USC <laughs> 15,041, Section C, yeah. um, and there was a limit for him about um, how cray cray he was going to go, and then beyond that. I think he also realized that the pushing that Trump was doing, um, and the assistance he was getting from, you know, hacks like this guy Eastman and other people, was potentially pushing them into um, Title 18, where you see that's the United States criminal code. And so I think that um, both, in terms of not wanting to be seen as just plainly crazy, and also wanting to limit his um, his potential criminal liability, is what I think ultimately you know made him decide to 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 get out of the department. But let's also remember that glowing letter that he wrote upon his resignation. It wasn't like yeah. he was saying, uh, I, "I'm leaving as a matter of principle because I don't like what the president is doing with regard to our electoral system." I mean, he praised Trump up and down um, and made it seem as if you know, he was totally in sync with the things that the president um, had done and, in fact, uh, was was doing.
0: It's a little bit all, odd also from my perspective, because unlike some other people who have remained sycophantic, Bill Barr is not running in a Republican primary for Congress. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't need the endorsement. You know, that's one of the reasons at the beginning when he was named that I was a little bit more optimistic because he's not a politician. He's at the end of his career. And, you know, he said as much, you know, I'm not running for anything. I'm not doing any other job after this didn't matter. Um do you have a view on Rod Rosenstein, the former deputy attorney general and how he conducted himself?
1: Yeah, you know, I've known Rod for uh, you know, a fair number of years and um you know, I I I, I hoped that he again would be another place where another source of both sanity and uh, and tradition within the department. And then as you examined, you know, the role that he played with sessions um, with, with regard to how um, kids at the border, um, trying to get into the United States at the Mexican border, um, were treated, that was, to say the least, um, you know, extremely disturbing. Um, and I, I think, you know, a, a lot of people get got a little too close to power, um, and maybe didn't have within them the, the moxie that you need to be able to tell a superior uh, no or to go against a policy that you know, that you have to know, that is just wrong, that's inhumane. Um, so I would say that, you know, I, as much as I've liked Rod and, and, and worked with him, I would say that uh, his performance as, as deputy was deficient in, uh, you know, in a lot of ways. Yeah,
0: I mean, I yeah, I agree with that. So, so the, the main question that people have on their minds is separate and apart from what the committee is doing, what is the likelihood that there will be criminal accountability with respect to Donald Trump? Have you seen enough—and this is a question I always get, so it's nice to be able to ask someone else (laughs) (laughs) who used to outrank me the same question— have you seen enough evidence to make the case that Donald Trump violated a statute—
1: well, first off, let's just clear something up here for in, in a quick 20 seconds. Uh, I was the Attorney General of the United States. Preet was the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York. If you think that in any way I was Preet's boss or that he was anything other than the Lord of uh, of Manhattan and, you know, related in It's a fiefdom. It's, it's a fiefdom, yes. So let's just make that perfectly clear. We were, um, we, we were colleagues, let's put it that way. I was
0: insubordinate, uh, only infrequently—
1: <laughs> <laughs> you were actually, one, you were actually one of our best. Uh, all kidding aside, one of our best U.S. attorneys, and actually, I think we'll go down in history as one of the best um, U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York. And when mm-hmm. I say that, that is a substantial compliment.
0: You think, you think better than Rudy.
1: Uh, it's, it's close. It's close. Um, yes, yes. I I think substantially better than Rudy. Um, but you know, it's interesting. Rudy has to be viewed not only for what he did in the Southern District, not only what he did as mayor, but his, I don't know how do you put it, his subsequent career, which diminishes everything that happened, um, everything that he did, that he did before.
0: Um, can you, how many occasions can you recall when you and I spoke and I was Providing a, a briefing about a case where I was apparently inebriated.
1: <laughs> <laughs> As best I know, Preet, you always seem to be in charge of your faculties. <laughs> I didn't deter any slurring in your speech. Uh you always seemed
0: coherent and kind of, you know, conversant with the topics that we were talking about. So uh, I tried to be when I was speaking with the attorney general. But um <laughs> to go back to the to the issue which I digressed from mm-hmm. criminal criminal liability, do you see it?
1: You know, I certainly see the potential there. I think, first off, this notion that people say, well, it's going to be hard to prove his intent, I think that's actually the easy part. Um, Really? Yeah, I mean, all this—Trump either had to be— he's either a liar or he has to be delusional. Uh, I mean, how could—you know, the the intent thing all revolves around whether or not he actually believed that he was cheated out of a victory— And so that would somehow be the reason why he was participating in all these schemes that are now being examined. Um, On the basis of all the evidence that we've seen, the uh, interactions that he had with people who told him, you lost the election, and also just with regard to the profound craziness of the issues that they raised. I mean, you know, Bringing in ballots and, and barrels and whole, all you know all the stuff that that has been that has been talked about, it seems clear to me that he either, as I said, knew that it was all a lie, um, or that he is truly delusional. And I don't think he is delusional um, to such an extent that that would be a defense that he could use, or frankly, that he would use. So I think the intent part is going to be relatively easy um, to prove. The question then is, is he connected to one of two things, either what happened on January the 6th, that is, you know, the the physical um, storming of the Capitol, or was he a part of, uh, and can you link him to this effort to, um, to, to actually pull off the coup through not not the physical means necessarily, but through um, the, the so-called legal means that uh, Eastman and other people were trying to uh, were trying to perpetrate. And in that that latter one, I mean that you also have to take into consideration um, what he said, to those folks in Georgia, you know, find me 11,780 yeah. votes or, or, or whatever it is. I mean, that could be a specification for a perjury, uh, for a, a conspiracy charge that you might bring in, uh, you know, in Washington, DC. So I, I think uh, it remains to be seen, I think, if, if you can link him into one of those two things, but if you can, uh, I think,
0: uh, you know, the, the, the charges will be available to be brought. So if you were the attorney general at this moment, would you be expecting to have on your desk a draft indictment or not yet
1: um I don't it's hard to know exactly where the Justice Department is in terms of their um, in terms of their investigation and I have to presume that an investigation is is underway. Um, if I were the AG I would expect at some point um, a prosecution memo, that would probably lay out um, all the reasons why charges should be brought against, you know, the former president, other people in the White House, people at the Justice Department, and then people outside of government. Um, I, I think we know enough, at least at this point, that a, a prosecution memo, you know, could be could be works. written. Right. Now, the question is interesting, you know, as you know, interesting timing questions, if that um prosecution memo was to hit your desk oh i don't know say in september august of this year is that too close to the november election do you then push off a determination about what you're going to do with it until you know post november of this year justice department policy being that you don't do things that interfere um with the with uh, an election so do you wait until you know december or early 2023 and i think we made actually that is something that actually might push DOJ, a DOJ determination into the next year.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a real consideration. And as you point, we're already in the middle of June. Nothing is going to be immediate. I mean, we don't even know if the DOJ is going to be interviewing many of these people close to Trump who are testifying before the committee. Um, Mm -hmm. If you were the attorney general, would you have, would you have been asking agents and prosecutors to be interviewing some of these people like Bill Stepien and Mike Pence and Mike Pence's chief of staff and others? Sure, yeah.
1: I think, yeah, I think so. I, I think, you know, if this were centered in the Southern District, or if if you were involved, or if I was making calls as Attorney General, I think both of us would have um, had agents out there talking to these people. And it is entirely possible that agents have talked, you know, to these
0: people. Um, but don't you think we would have heard that? There would have been leaks about that.
1: You actually anticipated what I was (laughs) going to say next, which is—and that's the thing that I find a little concerning and um, confounding. The fact that we've not had leaks of grand jury appearances um, or the receipt of grand jury subpoenas or indications that certain people have been interviewed by the FBI gives me some pause um, to think, well, is this investigation unlike any other? And it is— maybe unlike any other. But you know, you, as you know, it, typically in an investigation, um, these things become public because somebody close to a person who has received a subpoena knows about it, tells somebody in the press. I mean, the word gets spread around in some form or fashion. And this one has um been very quiet. I got Navarro said that he got a grand jury subpoena, right. I guess, a couple of weeks or so ago. But other than that, I'm not sure I've heard anybody say or, or heard any reports of anybody getting grand jury subpoenas or being interviewed by the uh, by the FBI.
0: One more question about this, then we'll get to voting. If it is true that the department is, is waiting for the January 6th committee to do its work and to turn over its transcripts, do you have any explanation as to why it would take that approach?
1: No. Um, and that would actually kind of surprise me. Um, the fact is that the department has to act independently, make its own independent determinations about uh, what it's ultimately going to do. And it has to be based on actions um, and investigations, interviews that it itself has done. Um, and so I, you know, I, I, <laughs> Uh, I'm just not sure. I don't, I don't think that you know you'd have to wait for the January 6th folks, to, uh, the committee to to finish their work, um, or to have their work product in your hands. Though that could be extremely helpful, um, and might yeah you know might actually shorten the amount of time that you have to spend in the field making determinations about who it is you want to interview, or whose credibility do you want to you want to test. It, it appears the way the January 6th committee is working that by the end, I think all of the things that um, prosecutors, investigators will want to have done will at least have been previewed in a very substantial way. And if nothing else, if nothing else, and I suspect it'll be more than that, if nothing else, it'll be one of the best guides that um, an investigation could ever have.
0: We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Attorney General Eric Holder after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, a podcast from Wondery. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon, a diverse group of abolitionists began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, not the senator, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. And in the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by those committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Facing terrible violence, retribution, or even death if caught, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states for those enslaved people who risked the journey, and even went as far north as Canada, where their freedom was assured. You can follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to this season of American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. 37,000. 25. 1. Those numbers might not mean much to you, but if you're looking to get the visibility and control you need to help make the right business decisions, they're the three numbers you'll want to remember. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a cloud financial system that can help streamline your accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. And according to NetSuite, that's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down expenses. And then there's one, because your business is one of a kind. So you can get a customized solution for all of your KPIs. That stands for Key Performance Indicators in one efficient system. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com/preet. That's netsuite.com/preet to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com/preet. So I want to, I want to get into the discussion about voting rights and, and and the voting opportunities that people have in this country. Mhm by way of a Supreme Court case uh, that has your name in it. I think you're only one of two guests who I've had on the show who have been mm-hmm. a named party. <laughs> okay. the, other is, the other is Lee Bollinger, uh, who okay. you know, obviously. Yep. So the case is Shelby County v. Holder. It's been discussed on this pod uh, earlier. Could you just remind people in a, in a sentence or two what that case was about and why it was terrible?
1: Yeah, well, first off, I, I only call it the Shelby County case. Uh, <laughs> I, I never want my you leave name. leave out the Holder. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, otherwise, it's like Dred Scott versus Holder or something. You know, you'd never want to be that guy.
0: That's Um, fair. That's fair.
1: And I don't want to be so forevermore, whenever you refer to it on your podcast or in private life, otherwise, call it the Shelby County case. Um, Shelby County case was decided 5-4 by the Supreme Court in 2013 and essentially gutted um, the Voting Rights Act by looking at a component of the act, of coverage formula. And just to kind of boil it down, it essentially uh, took away from the Justice Department the ability to pre-clear electoral changes in so-called covered jurisdictions around the country, largely states in the the South, but actually parts of of New York State were covered by um, the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And by taking that Ability to pre-clear, which was to, in essence, say, well, right, if you want to change polling places or, or polling times, are you trying to purge voters or something in a covered jurisdiction? You have to get the approval of the Justice Department to do these things, and taking that ability from the taking that ability uh, to pre-clear away from the Justice Department freed up states and localities to do a whole variety of things that they did almost immediately after the decision, uh, the imposition of. Um, These unnecessary photo ID laws, since the Shelby County decision in 2013, we've seen almost 1,800 polling places closed around the country, uh, almost disproportionately in those states that were once covered by the act and disproportionately in communities of color. Um, that decision, I think, along with Citizens United and the Rucho decision, which where the Supreme Court, again, 5-4, said that they would not uh, consider whether or not partisan gerrymandering was violative of the United States Constitution. I think those three cases will um, be viewed uh, 50 years from now, maybe shorter than that, um, in the same way that we look now at the I'm getting a little too technical at the, at the Lochner era cases of the Supreme Court in the early part of the 20th century. Lochner v. Uh, Holder, right? Uh, no, no, I was <laughs> I was not around for those. <laughs> but those early those the Lochner era cases were ones that were used early on to knock out significant portions of uh, of the New Deal and are seen as, you know, really bad decisions or a bunch of bad decisions by the court. I think when it comes to uh looking at our the protection of our democracy, the protection of our electoral system, uh, those three cases will be seen as kind of Lochner-era cases for the uh, for the Roberts Court.
0: I want to get to the particular scenario of gerrymandering that you talk about a lot in your book, Our Unfinished March, but generally speaking, what is the greatest impediment to widespread voting, uh, particularly on the part of uh, minority communities and others at this moment?
1: It's an interesting question. Um, you know, the difficulties that people have, um, they, they've thrown up so many impediments to, to making it more difficult. It's almost hard to pick one. I mean, you know, registering is, is something that uh, it, it should be more simple than it is. It's why in, in the book, you know, we call for automatic registration, um, you know, closing Polls at certain times, restricting the number of early voting days, now restricting uh, apparently the use of uh, mail-in ballots when we saw that really kind of supercharge our electoral system in 2020 without any indication of any um, significant fraud. The use of photo Unnecessary photo IDs to prove who you are, you claim to be when you want to vote, and I'm for I'm for voter ID as opposed to you know um, photo ID. So I, I think it's all of all of those things, um, and, and you know there there's there's a, a certain ingeniousness in, in the way in which uh, the people who draw up these statutes come up with ways in which they make it more difficult to vote for certain people, you know disproportionately people of color. Young people, um, urban dwellers, people who are perceived to be supporters of the uh, of the Democratic Party. So I'm not sure I could pick one yeah. as opposed. to- well, We should to po- do a
0: whole bunch of things.
1: Yeah, as as opposed to, as opposed yeah. to point to this constellation of uh, inappropriate things that they've gotten behind.
0: Now gerrymandering uh, is a term that is not ancient. Although mm-hmm. the concept goes back, and and you describe it as, as some other people describe it as a, a method by which instead of having a system in which voters choose their politicians, the politicians choose their voters. Right. What's so bad about that?
1: Well, you know, this this grand experiment of ours, this American nation was founded on the notion that the people should ultimately decide the direction of the nation, um, the fate of the republic. And and gerrymandering um, flips that on, on its head, allows... Politicians to pick their voters, and in doing so, uh, allows for the possibility, and we we're now seeing it play out, where a, a minority um, in the country, and I don't mean a racial minority, but I mean a a, a popular minority, a, you know, a minority by population can dictate to the majority um, the direction in which the nation ought to go. Very practically, you know, we're all concerned about what's going to happen with regard to the Mississippi case and whether or not Roe versus Wade um, gets uh, gets overruled. The Supreme Court is looking at statutes that have really cut back on Roe or 10 you know, have row overruled, passed by gerrymandered state legislatures, uh, state legislatures that are state legislators who are doing things inconsistent with the desires of their constituents, but because they're in gerrymandered safe districts face no electoral consequence. Um, And and so gerrymandering is just fundamentally inconsistent with who we say we are as a nation um, and what we fought for when we took on the mightiest empire, you know, in uh, in the na- in the world, when uh, when this country when this country was born. Now, it is something that Republicans in the last few decades um, have become expert at, especially after the or during the 2011 um, cycle when they had a thing yeah. called Project Red Map. But Democrats have been guilty of it, you know, um, as well. In fact, in the book, they talk about. As Best I could find, the first instance of gerrymandering uh, was when Patrick Henry gerrymandered so that I, he was either James Madison or James Monroe. He didn't like one of the Jameses. Uh, he, he drew a district in such a way to ensure that one of our, of our future presidents, one of our founding fathers, either James Madison or James Monroe, um, could not get a seat to which he was otherwise entitled. So gerrymandering goes back, you know, that far.
0: So, So what's the solution? Who should be determining electoral maps? Because there's controversy even when a special master gets appointed by a judge who's supposedly going to be independent, and then they draw up a map, and this has happened in New York's 10th district. I don't know if you've been following that. We had Mondaire Jones on recently, Mm -hmm. who's going to run in that district, Um, and our former colleague, my friend Dan Goldman, is going to run in that district. But then there's criticism that an unelected, appointed, single individual has drawn up the map. How should we be determining what the districts are?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I've looked at a variety of ways in which it's done around the country. And I ultimately come down on in, on the side of these independent commissions. But the commissions have to be well-constructed. They have to be staffed with people um, or people have to be the, uh, the commissioners who are, in fact um, – going to focus on doing things in a, in a fair way. It doesn't mean you can't have Republicans or, or, and Democrats on it, but you have to have a, a substantial number of people who are truly independent. California's system works pretty well. Michigan's has worked pretty well. Uh, the one that was set up in Virginia did not work particularly well. The one that is in Arizona and traditionally has worked pretty well did not do that well um, this time. So, But this, this notion of independent commissions, um, which the citizens vote in Michigan voted for but they also voted for it in Utah and Missouri as well. Whenever citizens have the opportunity to um, express their preferences, they always vote for, uh, in these statewide initiatives, the creation of these independent commissions. And I think that's actually the best way um, to do it. But any commission, you know, all commissions are not created equal. And as I said, Virginia's was not good. California's is good. So
0: can you give some, some color or flavor of that? What was wrong in Virginia and some other states? Well, the way in which the Virginia one was constructed, it had uh, kind of an equal number of Democrats
1: um, and and Republicans. And you could see that the way it was constructed, it was going to lead to to deadlock. And this is something that, you know, I predicted. A lot of good government types were like, no, you just want to leave the Democratic legislature and governor in charge of doing um, the redistricting. And as predicted, they ended up deadlocking. And so they were unable to agree on a map Ultimately, the Virginia Supreme Court had to uh, draw the maps, and to be fair to them, I think they drew some, you know, some pretty, some pretty fair maps. Um, and so, truly independent commissions um, with true power, uh, I think, is probably the, you know, the best way, uh, best way to do it. Now, the, no system is perfect, and there are going to be mistakes made even by by commissions. But if you take the people who are most interested in the result, that is sitting. Politicians um, out of the equation, uh, I think you get closer to um, a guarantee that you're going to have the best
0: of uh, you know the best result. And, And do you see a trend in that in that direction, or is this hopeful thinking?
1: Well, it's probably a, a bit of hopeful thinking. Every place where um, we found that there was a, a way through the state constitution uh, where you could put before the people through a ballot initiative, uh, say to the people, do you want to have an independent commission draw the lines? People said yes. And this was, as I said, in Utah, Missouri, uh, you know, red states, blue states, Michigan, Colorado. Um and so I, that, I think, is, you know, the people, that's what they want to do. But to ask state legislatures to actually create them, that's a little more difficult. Now, to be fair, Democrats in Virginia actually gave up power and ceded it to that um, that commission that was not drawn as or constructed as well as it could have been. Um, so I, I think— I'm not sure there are any more places that we're going to be able to find where we can do these ballot initiatives. So it's going to be hard
0: to have state legislatures, in essence, give up power. And when people see, Democrats in particular, see the consequences of the change in Virginia, does that have a negative effect on reform in other states?
1: Yeah, I guess it could if you focused only on Virginia. But if you look, um, as I said, at at Michigan— you know Colorado California other places where commissions um, have actually worked um and produced state legislatures and then you know congressional delegations that more accurately reflect uh the political makeup of the states i, I think that there's a good counter argument uh, against against those who would say um that commissions are uh you know are are not a good tool
0: i want to i'm going to change gears For a moment, and ask you about, you know, the state of law enforcement in the country, Mm -hmm. and the state of criminal justice in the country. And there was this moment—not just a moment, but—and some may think we're still in that moment after George Floyd was murdered by a police officer. Now there are a lot of concerns about rising crime, and people have debates and disagreements about the nature of the rise, the extent of the rise, what the causes are. Uh, We had this popular slogan, which is no longer popular in many places. Called defund the police. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you first about the the so-called progressive prosecutor movement and the San Francisco District Attorney being recalled. And there's again a debate about what that means and it's being is it being overinterpreted? Are Democrats you know wrong to be alarmed by that? Do you have a reaction to the recall in San Francisco?
1: Yeah, I don't know enough about exactly what happened there, but I do have kind of a, a an instinctive negative reaction to even the term progressive prosecutor i mean i'd like to think that i did a lot of progressive non-political progressive things as attorney general i think you certainly did a lot as um u.s attorney in, in manhattan but progressive prosecutor to me is, is kind of a that has a political ring to me as if you're bringing an ideological um view into uh what essentially is you know the criminal justice system, which you'd hope would be immune from that, doesn't mean that you shouldn't have policies that are more humane, um, policies in place that are really consistent with the notion of deterrence, um, rehabilitation, um, accountability—you know, all, all of those things. But I, I, I think that sometimes you can take a concept, you know, a little too far and um, infuse it with uh, with as i said ideological things and that at time that will run in tension um, with what i think a good um, functioning criminal justice system should look like because you've seen it from the other side where you know the, the tough on crime crowd uh, put in place these really draconian um, drug laws where people with you know nonviolent offenses uh, would go to jail for 5 10 15 years you know perhaps longer longer than that. Um, And so I I, I kind of recoil a little bit at the notion of being a so-called progressive prosecutor in the same way that I recoiled at the notion, uh, you know, we're not good on the Democratic side with slogans, it appears, you know? We should Um, stop with uh, the slogans, actually. I mean, (laughs) with with this this notion of defund the police. It's like, well, what does that mean? Uh, You talk to people in our most distressed communities, they don't necessarily want the police defunded as much as they want to be treated fairly, um, they want punishment to be commensurate with uh, the nature of, of the conduct. Um, they're looking for, you know, just equality in the criminal justice system, not necessarily, you know, a pullback of uh, of those forces that
0: are put in communities to keep, uh, you know, regular citizens safe. Yeah, people want people don't want crime to come back. You know, it's, it's interesting. You see a lot of people show these charts uh, that show— Well, crime was very, very bad, and violent crime in particular, was very, very bad in 1992. Mm -hmm. And the crime right now is well below that. But that's not how people think, and that's not how people think about the stock market. The the stock market, the S&P 500 just went into bear market territory. Mm -hmm. It it is not pleasing to people, because that's how human brains function, to say, well, yeah, but the S&P 500 is way above the level it was at in 1992. Mm -hmm. People care about current trends, and if it's less safe than it was two years ago, that's much more important to people than, it's more safe than it was 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that the balance can be struck between you know, public safety and fair justice and equality, uh, and how is that best struck?
1: Yeah, I don't think that there's a tension between um, you know keeping the American people safe um, and doing so in, in such a way that um, the criminal justice system um, is viewed as being um, a fair one. Um, it means, you know, arresting people when they, um, you know, commit crimes, holding them accountable, and then coming up with sentences that are commensurate with, uh, again, w- with their conduct. It means thinking about alternatives to incarceration. Um, you know, it means also dealing with uh, the underlying social problems that tend to uh, to, to breed crime. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting to me that when we were dealing, I guess, so, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s, with a crack problem, society's response was simply to use the criminal justice system. Let's lock people up, you know, in huge numbers and for, uh, you know, disproportionate amounts of time. Now we're dealing with, um, you know, a, a drug problem. That is not necessarily seen as a drug problem of the inner city, of people of color, um, you know, synthetic drugs, things of that nature, and dealing with um, people who are well white, part of the majority community. And there is a much greater um, view that we should use see this as as a public health crisis. Um, and you know, I, I think that there needs to be um, you know a mix of you know I'm not saying we should go back to the old days and and just use you know, criminal justice as the response, but I think the more enlightened approach that we're taking now is something that we should have probably used, um, you know, during the, the during the crack epidemic, and that would have had, I think, a whole bunch of positives that would have um, that would have flowed from it.
0: I have another question in this vein, and it is how you talk about the police. So obviously, as the U- as a U.S. attorney, I worked with law enforcement agents and with the New York City Police Department. You have been a supporter of police and law enforcement your whole life. I think various police mm-hmm. organizations endorsed you for the various positions that you've had. And then George Floyd gets murdered by a police officer and these other shootings that are not justifiable. And I'm sure you've come across people who have a very, very terrible view of the police generally. And you, particularly as attorney general, had to preside not only over law enforcement actions in which you partnered with law enforcement agents and the police, but also take civil rights actions and do reports. Like it was done in, in Missouri during the time you were attorney general. And I guess my long my long winded question boiled down to its essence is how do you talk to people about the police in a way that they find understandable given the various roles that you've had?
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Preet. Um as much as I'd like to think of myself as a supporter of the police, um, my brother is retired cop, um, and I served most of my professional career in law enforcement positions within the justice department. There are people on one side of the, you know, of the political spectrum who thinks that Eric Holder hates the police. Eric Holder hates people in law enforcement, I, which I always find I like just totally laughable, befuddling to me. Um, On the other hand, there are people on the other side of the spectrum who think that I'm an apologist for, um, you know, police misconduct, totally inconsistent with, uh, you know, the fact that we brought record numbers of these pattern of practice investigations against um, police departments around the country. I I mean, I think that, you know, the reality is that most cops— Uh, not most, but the vast majority of cops and and agents are good people trying to do um, a tough job. Now, as there are bad lawyers, there are bad doctors, and there are bad cops, and there are people who shouldn't be cops. Um, The guy, Chauvin, who, you know, kept his knee on George Floyd's neck obviously should never have been a police officer. Um, And so, you know, what I, I try to say is that we have the capacity within us to come up with better law enforcement uh, by having better law enforcement um, policies with regard to what our law enforcement priorities are going to be. Policing can be done um, better. We need to Understand that there is a historic distrust between communities of color uh, and, and people in law enforcement. That's just a reality that we have to somehow confront. And so dialogue um, has to be engendered between those two um, between those two entities. Um, you know, it, it's it, it, or we can fall into these simplistic kinds of things: you're pro law enforcement, or you're pro community, and 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 you know, you have to choose between them. When the reality is that. Um, you know, we'll we'll have to deal with this crime problem that uh, is now surfacing. Um, It's real in the minds of people. And as you're right, the the levels are lower than 1992, but it's real in the lives of people um, in 2022. And there's going to have to be a law enforcement response to it. But it doesn't have to be what we did in the 90s and the early 2000s, when we just Throw out dragnets and come up with you know stop and frisk and all these other things that at the end of the day, I'm not sure were all that effective and certainly had um, a negative impact on the relationship, the necessary relationship between
0: law enforcement and communities of color. Yeah, I want to end by talking about what inspires you, and I know there you have many sources of inspiration, and you've inspired many people. But you talk in your book about something that I just love you to mention to the audience. Tell us a story about your sister-in-law mm-hmm. at the University of Alabama in 1963, yep. and what that meant to you.
1: Yeah, June of 1963, my, um, my not then, but, but subsequently became my sister-in-law. Vivian Malone was one of two black students who integrated the University of Alabama in that famous um, stand in the schoolhouse door where George Wallace uh, prevented them from enrolling until President Kennedy, um, nationalized the uh, the National Guard there. And in conjunction with Deputy Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach, who was actually on the scene, and Attorney General Robert Kennedy, who was kind of commanding everything from Washington, D.C., she was allowed to register um, at the University of Alabama and became ultimately its um, first black graduate. The guy who went in with her, James Hood, did not Last for more than I guess a couple of months or so, um, Vivian actually stayed for the full time, and as I said, was the first black graduate. And I, I you know, she. Everybody remembers the stand in the schoolhouse door. Um, how elegant she was, uh, how poised she was. What people don't know is that she was shunned for her time uh, while she was at the University of Alabama. There were um, bombings that occurred nearby, um, and that were designed to, to to threaten her and get her to, to leave. The place where she was going to stay um, before she was going to, to register was actually fi- a black hotel, was actually firebombed. And so she was held uh, in secret at the, uh, the home of the secretary of the head of the local NAACP until the day in June when she and James Hood were taken to enroll. And Vivian's poise, um, her courage, um, you know, her ability to... Um, focus on the mission, which was, you know, her, her family, my wife's family, they have been Alabama residents going back to the, as we can, best we can figure out to the uh, 18th century. And yet they were denied the ability to go to uh, their state school simply because of the color of their skin. Um, and so she always, we lost her too soon, but um, she is, continues to be an inspiring presence in my life, not only for what she did, but it always reminds me of the countless other people, uh, especially in the South, especially people of color, um, too often women who have been forgotten, um, who sacrificed, uh, who committed themselves, um, who risked their lives so that I would have opportunities that um, that they did not, Um, the anniversary of her uh, integrating the University of Alabama was just about two, three days ago. And it's, uh, it's always something that I tweet about on the day of that um, anniversary to remind people of, uh, of people like Vivian, um, whose names are not maybe known to us now, um, but who are nevertheless architects of the better America in which we all live.
0: Did, did those events directly inspire you to eventually go to the Justice Department?
1: Yes, they did. I mean, that event, I remember watching from Queens uh, in my basement in uh, in East Elmhurst uh, on a black and white TV um, and being struck by kind of the, the enormity of what was going on. At the time, I was 12, and, you know, all the things that were going on in the South were kind of—I didn't totally understand as a northern kid— um, northern black kid, but I came to understand what was going on there, the Freedom Rides, um, John Lewis and the Edmund Pettus Bridge. You know, By that time, I'm 14 years old. Um, and all of that really kind of made me want to be like them and to fight for the things that they fought for. And it was later on that I decided that the law would be the vehicle um, that might best suit me to help in the in the cause in the way that uh, in the way that they did. You went to a
0: terrific law school, if I may say so myself. Yes,
1: the <laughs> law school that would the be the Columbia Law School. The that Columbia would be right. Law school.
0: <laughs> Final question, sir, and you mentioned Queens. Mm-hmm. Are you a New Yorker or are you a creature of the District of Columbia?
1: You know, I will forever be a New Yorker. Okay, good. I've lived in Washington now, um, I guess, probably the majority of my life, and yet, uh, when I come when I say, I'm com- I, I was just about to say, whenever I come home, and that means I'm coming home to, to New York. Um, we landed at LaGuardia Airport uh, last night, and I asked the driver to go right past my house, which is very close to, um, to LaGuardia. I just wanted to look at it at 24th Avenue and 101st Street. Malcolm X lived uh, just four blocks down from where, where I lived. Um, this is a special city. This is a special place. This is the most exciting city um, in the world. It's a city that formed me. It's the city that um, that supported me. Uh, it's the city that I uh, continue to love.
0: Attorney General Eric Holder, thank you for this important book, Our Unfinished March, and thank you for your service and your continued service, and I wish you well.
1: Well, thanks, Preet, it's great talking to you. Thank you for your service. Uh, you were a great U.S.
0: attorney, and you're an even better friend. Thank you, sir. My conversation with Attorney General Eric Holder continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com insider. Again, that's cafe.com insider. I want to end the show this week not talking about the violence in Ukraine or about the January 6th committee or about the doings of Congress, but something near and dear to my heart, the public library. Like many of you, I love public libraries. When I was a kid, I used to go to the Eatontown Public Library, and I cherished my library card. I think during the time I was growing up, I read every single book that was available, especially all the science fiction books in the Edentown Public Library. When I got to high school... I needed a larger library in the days before Google and the Internet, when you had to do a term paper, to what seemed to me to be a gigantic library, the Monmouth County Library. Libraries are one of those great public goods that we sometimes take for granted. A few stories related to libraries, if you can believe it, caught my eye this week, and I wanted to share them with you. That's right, multiple stories about libraries. First, I came across the sad news that Philip Baker Hall, the great and beloved actor, passed away on Sunday. If you watch Seinfeld, you'll remember him as Lieutenant Bookman, a detective for the New York City Public Library. The famously hilarious library cop character pursued decades of overdue fees and patrolled the library after hours. He was deadpan and committed to doing justice by the New York City Public Library. Jerry Seinfeld could clearly barely keep it together in his scenes with Hall. The Seinfeld role opened up many doors for Hall, who later became a favorite of the director, Paul Thomas Anderson, and appeared in several of his films. Hall lived to be 90 years old. Just days before the news of Hall's passing, another story had caught my attention. This one from a library in Tooting, South London. As the BBC reported, a man named Tony Spence, who now lives in Port Moody, British Columbia, returned a book by mail to the Tooting library that he had taken out in 1974. The copy of a Confederate general from Big Sur that he returned 48 years late, technically had an overdue fine of, get this, £6,170. But the library in South London agreed to waive it, which is a good thing. The library said it was surprised and delighted to have the book returned after not even realizing it had been missing. And why didn't they realize it? Because Tony Spence had checked out the book before the library had upgraded to a computer system. As Mr. Spence told the BBC... I just want to apologize for taking this amount of time to return it. And I hope the people who are on the hold list waiting for it to come in are not too angry with me. Here's another story. Ted Sams, a 77-year-old from California, may be able to relate to Mr. Spence. The Washington Post reported this week that Mr. Sams was denied his high school diploma in 1962 because of a $4.80 fine for a missing textbook. Sams told the Post... I didn't have a lot of money, and that amount would have filled my car with gas or paid for a dinner date, so I figured, forget it. I walked away and went off to enjoy the rest of my summer. But it bothered him over the years that he never got his diploma. So as the 60th anniversary of his misgraduation came up this year, his kids had an idea. They contacted the old high school's registrar, explained their father's situation, and asked if the diploma might still be around. Decades later, The school registrar went digging, and what did she find? A dusty, 60-year-old, sleeved diploma with Ted Sams' name on it. The school forgave his $4.80 fine, worth about $45 today, and invited him to come back to the school to walk with the 2022 graduates. And he did, proudly clad in a bright royal blue cap and gown. Sams said about the experience, it was almost like being a teenager again. These stories together remind me, and should remind you, that it's never too late to do what's right, even something as small as returning an overdue book, and it's never too late for forgiveness, either. And of course, my condolences to the family of Philip Baker Hall. For the record, Lieutenant Bookman would have never let those books disappear for all those years. May his legacy live on. Let me know if you have any great stories about your library. I'd love to hear them. Write to me at letters at cafe.com. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Attorney General Eric Holder. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669 247 7338. That's six six nine two four 24 Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The cafe team is David Curlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, Namita Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.